Sports Radio Broadcasting from coast to coast, city to city, coast to coast, it's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Thursday morning. Welcome on in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Before we go any further, let me just apologize. If you can hopefully not hear it, but I can definitely hear it. There has been incessant drilling going on outside my apartment for, oh, I don't know, the last two hours or so. Nothing like 7 a.m. Forget about the alarm waking you up. A nice jackhammer, you know, driving into the cement ground. A few blocks away. That will definitely wake you up. So I apologize. It has been consistent for the last two hours. Fingers crossed it's not too audible on the mic. Um, And hopefully, whatever they're doing, it has been all week construction. They are getting closer to being finished and will be done by the time, uh, or hopefully soon while the show is still in the air. So at least we get some peace and quiet in the background of the show. So I do apologize. Thank you for bearing with me there. But... The drilling will not stop what is going to be a very fun and loaded show here on this Thursday. We got Baker Mayfield to discuss. We got Jordan Love to hit on. We got the NBA playoffs, baby, starting on up. Well, we won't put the play-in tournament as part of the playoffs. We got some interesting storylines and a lot of pressure going into this postseason for a few players and one specific team. We'll get into all of that throughout the next two hours. As we go until 11 a.m. Eastern. As a reminder, we are coming to you live, as always, from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Let's talk Derek Carr and his brand new contract extension that he got yesterday. I don't like it from the Raiders' perspective. I think they made a mistake. And it's not the mistake of giving Derek Carr three years. I think the length is actually perfect. It's not a mistake of giving him $121.5 million uh, with that extension. It's not the fact for me, even, that he is getting $40.5 million average annual value, which makes him the fifth highest quarterback on that average in the NFL right now. It's none of that. The reason why I hate this contract extension from the Raiders' perspective is because they gave Derek Carr a a no-trade clause. The no trade clause to me is a massive mistake because what it does is it takes away the most important thing teams need when they don't have an elite uh, franchise Super Bowl caliber quarterback. When you don't have that guy, you need flexibility in order to get that guy. And for me, the no trade clause the Raiders gave Derek Carr takes away that flexibility Las Vegas needs in case... Whether it's through the draft or whether it's through a trade, you are able to land the guy that can take you to the next level. Because like I said, if you don't have the guy, we'll say what, 10 teams have the guy? So just under a third of the NFL, just about a third of the NFL have a quarterback they feel like they can win a Super Bowl with. Well, the other two thirds don't have the guy. They just have a guy. When you don't have the guy, you always got to be looking for the next guy, the next franchise quarterback that can get you to a Super Bowl. Look, let's just call it for what it is. To me, Derek Carr is not the guy. 
he's better than a guy, right? He's a top, let's say, 12 quarterback in the NFL. But I don't think Derek Carr is a quarterback that is going to get the Raiders to the Super Bowl. I don't think he's going to elevate this Raiders team above the Broncos with Russell Wilson, uh, above the Chargers with Justin Herbert, and above the Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes on a consistent basis year in and year out. And that is what you need from your quarterback in a what is a hellacious, hellacious division right now that is the AFC West. So with the Raiders, in my opinion, not having the guy, the Super Bowl caliber quarterback, when you don't have that guy, you need then to prioritize flexibility. You need to always be ready at the drop of a hat to be able to pivot away from your current quarterback to either, again, trade for a disgruntled quarterback like we've seen a few on the move this offseason, or be able to move up and draft a guy you think can get you to the promised land, similar to what the 49ers did with Trey Lance a few years ago. That flexibility is the most important thing for any team when they're looking to find their next franchise quarterback, but they don't have one. And for me, the Raiders losing that flexibility by giving Derek Carr control of his future in the form of a no-trade clause, it's a massive mistake. It's a massive mistake because now that no-trade clause gives Derek Carr all of the leverage on his future. The team doesn't control his future. Derek Carr controls his future. Because guess what? Let's just say tomorrow there's a team, let's say the Cardinals, go into a rebuild mode. Kyler Murray's on the block. DeAndre Hopkins on the block. If these Cardinals are going to tear everything down, well, if you're Derek Carr, you want to go to a rebuilding Cardinals team? Absolutely not. You can veto that trade, and there goes any hopes again, Kyler Murray. The no-trade clause removes the flexibility the Raiders need in order to acquire that Super Bowl-caliber quarterback. I think that's a massive mistake. Now, I will say to the Raiders' credit, and to Derek Carr's credit, he is a quarterback that is too good to give up on. I don't think it's wise if you don't have one to just basically punt and either draft one or, or just, you know, let's say um, sign Marcus Mariota or, or a, just a middling quarterback. Derek Carr is still a good quarterback. Again, he's a top 12 quarterback. He is capable, like we just saw this past season, of getting the Raiders to the playoffs. But really, outside of Russell Wilson, right, outside of Deshaun Watson, there's really no other quarterback this offseason that you are going to trade Derek Carr for. So it's not like we're just kind of throwing Derek Carr to the side here and say, ah, oh, this guy stinks, trade him for anything, and we just want someone else here. Derek Carr is still a really damn good quarterback, and there's only, I would say, about 10 quarterbacks you'd move him off him for. Right? Like I just said, he's a, if he's a top 12 quarterback, there's not many above him that you would uh, you would trade him for. Or there's not really any quarterbacks below him that you would trade him for. And none of those really, for the most part, top 10 uh, quarterbacks are getting traded. So it's not like the, the Raiders are in desperate need to get rid of Derek Carr. I think he does deserve a chance to show um, what he's got with the new head coach and Josh McDaniels. I think he does deserve a chance to see how he plays with his former teammate at Fresno State in Devontae Adams, see how now he has a full complement of weapons on the offensive side. You add Chandler Jones on the defensive side as well to get you know a little extra pass, uh, extra pass rush. Derek Carr is still good enough to deserve a chance here with the Raiders. But what I would have done if I was uh, Dave Zyko, the, the new GM in Las Vegas, is one of two things. Number one, I would not have given him a contract extension. He had one year left in his deal. I would have rather seen how Derek Carr plays this season, see how the Raiders do, and then from there, either pay more because Derek Carr had a great year, led him to the playoffs, maybe even get you a playoff win, or 
let's say Derek Carr has a middling year or fizzles out, doesn't play well, and for the third time in four years, the Raiders collapse down the, uh, down the stretch and miss the playoffs. I said, okay, let's move on. Carr, thanks, but no thanks. We're, you know, you're, you're not a guy that we can truly rely on, and we're going to go elsewhere. I would not have... I personally would have just played this year out, but if you're going to give him the contract, that's one thing. Don't give him a no-trade clause that allows him to control his future. Because the reality is, like I just said, well, Derek Carr is still a top-12 quarterback in the NFL. I don't think he's a Super Bowl-caliber quarterback. So I don't think that you could truly feel good about your chances of winning the big game with Derek Carr um, as your guy, as a signal caller. And realistically, he is the worst quarterback in your division. I get this division is loaded, right? This is historically a deep and talented division than what we've seen with the AFC West, right? No team or no division has had four teams kind of go all in and improve and be as good as they're going to be next year. So I get it. It's kind of a, a, a circumstance that is different than what we are normally uh, expecting in a division where usually there's one or two great teams, one maybe okay team and one bad team. All four are either elite or really damn good teams. So I get it. It's it's different than normal. But with that said, the reality is Derek Carr is the worst quarterback in your division, and that is not changing within the next five years. Justin Herbert's going nowhere. Patrick Holmes is going nowhere. Russell Wilson's going nowhere. So no matter what, Derek Carr is always going to be the worst quarterback in that division, which makes it tougher for the Raiders to consistently compete, make the playoffs on a consistent basis, and then once you're in there, win playoff games. So now with Derek Carr under contract through 2025, now that he has a no-trade clause and controls his future, the Raiders really can't move off of Carr to get that quarterback that can take him over the top, and that is concerning. Because when you look around the NFL, when you look around how most teams who have an elite quarterback, if you look how they got him, most teams acquired their elite quarterback by ditching a good quarterback, a pretty good quarterback in the process, which Derek Carr would fall under in this category. Like, look at the Chiefs. The Chiefs had Alex Smith. They made the playoffs with Alex Smith. They were winning 10 games on a consistent basis. Well, they traded up to get Patrick Mahomes. They had a good quarterback in Alex Smith, a Playoff caliber quarterback in Alex Smith. They traded up, drafted Patrick Holmes. Boom, he hit. He's taking them to the next level. Uh, he's taking them to the next level, excuse me. And as we know, won a Super Bowl. The Rams had a Super Bowl or a quarterback that took them to the Super Bowl in Jared Goff. They moved off him. They traded him because the, the Rams had the flexibility to do so. Jared Goff did not have a no trade clause. They bring in Matthew Stafford. Boom, Super Bowl. Broncos, Russell Wilson, they maintained that flexibility at quarterback. They got Russ. The Bills went to the playoffs the year before with Terod Taylor. That ensuing draft, traded up, got Josh Allen. The Cardinals, look, Josh Rosen stinks. I'm not trying to sell you that Josh Rosen is a good quarterback, but the Cardinals did something we never, ever see. Ditching a first-round quarterback after one year. They drafted him in the top 10. One year later, they said, screw this guy, he stinks. We're going to go to Kyler Murray, number one overall. They moved off of a first-round quarterback so quickly or I really, I should say, quicker than we've really ever seen. The Browns had a good quarterback, a guy who's won you a playoff game in Baker Mayfield, and they said, all right, we're going to get Deshaun Watson. So whether it's the Browns, Cardinals, Bills, Broncos, Rams, Chiefs, all for the most part had a good quarterback in place, but while having that good quarterback in place maintained flexibility that eventually allowed them to either trade up to draft a franchise quarterback that's taken them to the next level or trade for that elite quarterback. 
those teams are, are not anomalies. That's how you do it. You stay competitive. You have a quarterback that at least is good enough to get to the playoffs. But when you see the moment, when you see the opportunity where you can get an upgrade, you strike. Boom. You go pull a trigger on the uh, trade or uh, picking them in the draft. And the Raiders don't have that flexibility. The Raiders, with giving Derek Carr a no-trade clause, lose that flexibility because now Derek Carr is the one in control, not the Raiders. And in every other circumstance I just laid out for you, the team had control of the quarterback, not the other way around. So the lack of the ability for the Raiders to pivot to get an upgrade at quarterback should it present itself. Now, there's no guarantee it's going to present itself. Let me just throw that out there. But with that said, you still want the flexibility to make a move if, if the unthinkable happens and we saw a lot of unthinkable moves this offseason. Russell Wilson getting traded. Deshaun Watson getting traded. Who knows Aaron Rodgers after the Devonta Adams trade. Maybe next year he's back on the block and wants out. You need that flexibility in order to make a move for a quarterback that maybe either wants to go to your uh, team or is disgruntled and looking to go to a playoff contender and the Raiders can sell themselves on being a Super Bowl caliber team if you acquire an elite quarterback. So you need that flexibility and the Raiders don't have it. So even with the money... All things considered being reasonable, even with the years, especially on a three-year deal, uh, being reasonable for the Raiders and Derek Carr, the one detail that to me ruins the entirety of this contract extension is a no-trade clause that makes it almost impossible for the Raiders to move on. That to me is a mistake. You need to uh, prioritize flexibility, and the Raiders did not do that. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Are you with me? Do the Raiders make a mistake in giving Derek Carr a new contract extension? Or do you think it's the right move? I think the Raiders did the right thing in keeping a top 12 quarterback in town for the next four seasons and hitching their wagons to Derek Carr. Love to hear your thoughts, whether it's on Facebook or at Worldwide Sports Ray Network. Also, check us out at the Ryan Hickey Show page on Facebook. Newly created, you'll be able to, if you throw uh, that a like on Facebook... That is where every single show will be posted. Every single you know clip from the show will be posted as well. A lot of show content will now be kind of cycled into the Ryan Hickey Show page on uh, Facebook. So make sure you like us there. Check us out on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. At Ryan Hickey Show. Also, WWSRN underscore radio. And we're on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So love to hear your thoughts here. Did the Raiders make the right move in giving Derek Carr a contract extension? When we return... The NBA playoffs, the official playoffs, start this weekend. I think there are two teams or two players and one team that have immense pressure on them more than anyone else. And I really haven't heard anyone talking about these players or team. We'll discuss the three um, factors, players and or teams, with by far the most pressure on them this postseason when we return. You listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back into the show. So the NBA postseason is is getting ready to officially start this weekend. So as it gets set to start looking at the first round of the playoffs, I think there are two players 
and one team that by far have the most pressure on them of any players or any teams in the NBA postseason. It's Kyrie Irving, it's James Harden, and it's the Utah Jazz. Those three players and or teams, again, Irving, Harden, Jazz, I think have by far the most pressure on this postseason because they all have something in common. Their futures are all tied to this postseason. Here's what I mean. Let's start with Kyrie Irving. I think Kyrie Irving's future, whether he's a Brooklyn Net or whether he's playing somewhere else next year, is tied to how he plays this postseason. He has a player option. He's going to opt out. He's going to become a free agent this offseason. Kyrie Irving's already said he wants to stay in Brooklyn. He's not going to ditch his guy seven in reference to Kevin Durant. Not the first time we've heard Kyrie Irving make promises of returning to a team. Remember in Boston, he said, oh, I'd love to be here if you'll have me. And as we know, a few months later, he was gone. So Kyrie Irving, at least publicly, said he wants to stay with the Nets. He envisions himself playing in Brooklyn alongside Kevin Durant for the long haul. But here's the reality. Does Kevin Durant, or here's the bigger question, does Kevin Durant actually want Kyrie Irving as his running mate? Because let's call for what it is. Kyrie Irving is a free agent, so in theory, he has control over his future. But the reality is, Kevin Durant is the one calling the shots. Kevin Durant, if he doesn't want Kyrie Irving back on the team, the Nets aren't going to sign Kyrie. I don't care how badly Kyrie wants to return. If KD says no, the Nets will say no. So if Kyrie Irving struggles this postseason, if the Nets fall to the Celtics and it's six-game series, but Kyrie Irving struggles for most of it or gets hurt again, are we sure, ask yourself, are we sure Kevin Durant wants Kyrie Irving back? This has nothing to do with his talent on the floor. Kyrie Irving's a great player. But the reality is, Kyrie Irving's career, and especially his Nets tenure, has been highlighted by unreliability. And if you're Kevin Durant, do you really want to hit your wagons to someone you truly can't trust? Because if we look back so far at Kyrie Irving's just, just the Nets tenure, we had the entire vaccine fiasco this year, right? We were ineligible for basically half the, uh, the home games until a few weeks ago. But if you say, oh, Ryan, the vaccine mandate was lifted. He is now playing home games. He is now good to go. And outside of Toronto, if they play him in the playoffs, he is going to be suited up for every single game. Okay, fine. But that's the thing. Or here's the thing. It's not just the vaccine um, situation where he was unvaccinated that uh, Kevin Durant can't have trust in Kyrie. If you go back to last season, he went MIA in the middle of the, week, uh, the season for two weeks without telling anyone. You remember that? Early in the year. Just disappeared. Didn't give a reason for it. He was seen on social media at a birthday party. Didn't really, you know, say too much about it. When he returned, he didn't really answer any questions or take accountability to explain himself. He went MIA for two weeks. What say he won't do that again? The first season he was in Brooklyn, when Kevin Durant missed the entirety of the season with that Achilles injury that he was rehabbing from, Kyrie just played 20 games. That's it. 20 games on the court in that first season in Brooklyn. So his first year in Brooklyn, he barely played a third of the season. The second year, he went MIA for two weeks without telling anyone and then got hurt in the playoffs. And then this season, he was ineligible for almost half the season because he didn't want to get the vaccine. And if you look too, if you tell me, look, he's eligible and now all that matters for the Nets and Kevin Durant is the postseason how he plays, well also, going on the unre- uh, unreliability factor, Kyrie Irving has not exactly always been available for playoff games. Since he made the shot, right? If you go back to... The, uh, his postseason since making that epic shot for the Cavs in Game 7 to eventually win the finals for them against the Warriors. Since that game, Kyrie Irving has played in 36 playoff games. He has missed 26 playoff games. So it's not like he's been on the court come postseason time anyway. 
He missed the entirety of the postseason in his first year in the bubble. Last year, as we know, he got hurt uh, late in this series against the Bucs and missed the last three games, which really turned the tide of the series. So you can't even rely on Kyrie Irving from a health perspective to be available in the biggest games of the season because the last few years, he's played in 36 playoff games, but he's missed 26 playoff games. So there's no doubt in Kyrie's talent, and we just saw it in the playing game on Tuesday, in case anyone forgot, dropping 34 points on 12-15 shooting and started off making his first 12 shots. The guy was unconscious. And again, when he's on the court, when he's available and healthy, he is still one of the best players in the NBA. But the issue if you're Kevin Durant is the lack of trust. His performance, his availability is not consistent. And for Kevin Durant, who is turning 34 next season, do you really want to rely on someone who is as inconsistent as Kyrie Irving has been the last few years? I I, I question it. So if this is a this is a postseason where Kyrie struggles, is up and down, misses a game or two because injury, or just struggles from the field. Kevin Durant's got to look in the mirror because if these if the Nets lose to the Celtics in the first round this year, three years of Kevin Durant and Kyrie, obviously one without KD there, so one year Kyrie, two with KD and Kyrie, that's resulted in one playoff win or one playoff series win. That's it. If they lose to the Celtics, we are looking at the reality of the KD-Kyrie duo winning one playoff series so far. That's not what they signed up for. So I think Kevin Durant makes a move. If Kyrie struggles or is unavailable in a few games, I do think Kevin Durant says, you know what? I'm going to get a new partner. I'm going to get someone else in here that I can rely on in the regular season to be more available and in the postseason to be there next to me. There's a lot of pressure on Kyrie Irving this postseason to earn his keep. Speaking of earning your keep, the same thing to me can be said for James Harden. Just like Kyrie Irving's future to me, is dependent on how he plays this postseason. James Harden's future with the Sixers, I think, is equally as dependent on how he plays in this postseason. If James Harden, James Harden's in the postseason like we have seen him almost every year of his career, where he struggles, he's insanely inefficient, and shrinks in the big moment. If that happens again, which is so far it's happened in every single uh, year of the playoffs he's been in, if it happens again in Philly this postseason, there is no justification for the Sixers bringing him back. I don't care if Daryl Morey and James Harden are best friends. I don't care what the Sixers gave up in order to acquire him. There is no justification. You cannot, to me, then bring back James Harden on a big-time extension when he struggles on the postseason yet again. We, again, we have seen the sample size be big enough already in previous seasons, and we have seen him on different teams now with whether it's the Nets recently, with whether it was the Rockets, where he struggles to play well in the postseason. And if this happens again in Philly, he is going to be a free agent this offseason. And I don't see how you can truly, if you're Darren Moore with a straight face, sell your fan base, and more importantly, sell Joel Embiid on James Harden being the answer and being the difference maker to winning a title in Philly. If he struggles, you got to let him walk or you got to do a sign and trade. One of the two, you cannot bring James Harden back next season if he does what he has consistently done in the postseason, which is shrink. Because when you, if you were Daryl Morey, your obligation is to the team, is to really Joel Embiid. I don't care if you're best friends with Darryl, uh, with uh, James Harden. Joel Embiid's situation is different than most stars. His prime is shorter, right? That's just a fact. We know the injury history for Embiid. Your, your window is smaller 
than most star players built around uh, you know that ha- that teams have in the NBA. So when you have a short prime and a shorter window to win a title with your star playing the best uh, basketball of his career, you can't waste years with players who can't get it done. And that's what right now James Harden is. He can't get it done. And you look at two reportedly before the trade was even made, MB was more pushing for Bradley Beal at the deadline before he got injured than James Harden. He had to be sold on Harden coming to Philly. So if things flop in the playoffs, if Harden struggles and they lose to the Raptors in the first round, I can't see Embiid saying, let's run it back, bring back James Harden. I think he will be on board with bringing someone else. I think he'd rather see another trade or another signing than having James Harden come back to Philly. So this postseason, I think, is massive for the future of James Harden. If he struggles, I think there's there's a real chance Philly moves on. Whether Daryl Morey wants to or not, I think you got to put the priorities of Embiid and what he wants first and foremost, and you can't hitch your wagons to a guy in James Harden who's getting older, who's getting slower, and again, as we know, throughout the entirety of his career, has always struggled in the postseason. If we get another classic James Harden postseason performance, I think his time in Philly is over. So Kyrie Irving and James Harden, two players where I do think their futures are are tied to how they play in the postseason. And the one team I think that is truly under the most pressure, it's not the Suns, it's not the Bucks, it's not the Nets, it's not the Heat. It's the Jazz. The Jazz, not that they have finals expectations. Really, the Jazz expectations this season is to win a playoff series. That's it. Bare minimum, get out of the first round. If they don't, if they lose to a Luka-less Mavericks team in the first round of the playoffs... Big changes are coming. There's no team that's going to blow up their their squad more if they have an early postseason exit than the Utah Jazz. I'm telling you right now, if the Jazz lose to the Mavericks in the first round of the playoffs, big changes are coming. Whether it's trading Rudy Gobert, whether it's Don Mitchell forcing his way out, whether it's trading both and starting over, big changes are coming in Utah if they lose in the first round yet again. And especially, big changes are coming when you look at now the break they are getting with Luka Doncic's injury. Right now, that calf injury that he suffered, the calf strain that he suffered back on Sunday, the last game of the regular season, has really left the the Mavs in a bind here. His status for game one right now is uncertain. Adrian Wojnarowski yesterday in ESPN was basically saying that it's unlikely he's going to play for game one. Calf injuries, calf strains, usually, right, it depends on the player and it depends on, you know, the severity of the injury, which we do not know, yet the Mavericks have not released the severity yet. But usually it's, I don't know, two to three week injury before things start to get better. So two to three weeks is halfway into round one. So if Luka can't play early on in the series, and if you're the Jazz, you get a break by missing the best player on the Mavs and one of the best players and one of the best playoff players in all of the NBA, you got to win that series. Because even if he returns, even if Luka plays game one, he's nowhere near 100%. He's going to be limited. So you got to take advantage of one of the best players in the, uh, in the NBA, either missing time or not being 100%. The Jazz got to capitalize. You have to win that series. I'm telling you, big changes are happening if they don't. Because if you look at right now, the past few years, if the if Utah loses this series against the Mavericks, it's the third heartbreaking postseason collapse in a row. 
You can only take so much pain before, you know, the definition of insanity kicks in and you're doing the same thing over and over and over again without changing anything. If you go back to the bubble, they are 3-1 on the Nuggets, blew that. Blew a 3-1 lead to the Nuggets in the bubble in 2020. Last year, you're the number one seed in the NBA. Second round of the playoffs, taking on a Clippers team that has never in their history been to a conference finals and they lose Kawhi Leonard in game four. The series is tied 2-2 and the Clippers lose Kawhi Leonard to a, an ACL injury that we know he later needs surgery for. You cannot lose games five and six, and that's exactly what the Jazz did. And blew a 25-point lead in game six to end their season. You talk about a heartbreak. 3-1 lead blowing that is, is bad enough. Then next the next season, when the Clippers lose their best player in Kawhi Leonard, you lose the next two games without him to get yourself eliminated from the playoffs. There is nothing. Nothing that could justify right now the Jazz running things back if they, for the third season in a row, lose a heartbreaking series and lose a series to which one of the best players on the opposing team is hurt. No other team is that much on the line. Right? You look at the Nuggets. Are the Nuggets blowing things up if they lose in the first round to the Warriors? No. Are the Warriors blowing things up if they lose and reverse to the Denver Nuggets who are shorthanded in the first round? No. Suns are not doing anything. The Sixers, like I said, I think would move James Harden, but it's not like they're tearing it down. They're not going to trade uh, Embiid. They're not going to just completely go into a rebuild. Bucks aren't changing. The Heat aren't making drastic moves. The name whatever team. The Nets aren't making too many drastic moves. No team is going to look different from right now, this time, to next season more if they lose than the Utah Jazz. The Jazz right now the only team that are in a true Serious situation where things will be blown up on that team if they lose in the first round. No other team has that pressure to get out of the first round more than the Utah Jazz this season. So when you look around as the NBA playoffs get set here to start, I think by far the, the two players with the most pressure on them to perform are Kyrie Irving and James Harden. Because both of their statuses for next season, I think, are contingent upon how they play in the playoffs. If Kyrie Irving struggles, I think Kevin Durant says, you know what, I got to go. Time to cut the cord. Let's get someone else in here that's more reliable. And the same thing can be said by Embiid and the Sixers. If James Harden does what James Harden does in the postseason and struggles yet again, is inefficient, can't get many shots down, and just struggles, I think Embiid is going to say, I got a short window here. We're going to bring in someone else that I know that can get the job done. I'm not going to hitch my wagons to someone I know who can't get the job done in James Harden. And for the Jazz, I think serious changes are coming for the Jazz if they lose in the first round to a Mavericks team that either misses Luka Doncic for most of the series or doesn't play for most of the series but be severely hampered in doing so with that calf strain injury. So by far, the most pressure is the Jazz, to me, team-wise, in the playoffs. And then the two players, James Harden and Kyrie Irving. How about yourself? Which team, in your mind, has the most pressure on them so far in the playoffs? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. Or on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Make sure you comment there. And which player, in your mind, has the most pressure on them? Is it Chris Paul, who doesn't have a ring? who arguably right now looking at least the West has this best chance to get back to the finals. And I think right now the Suns have the best chance to win the finals of any team. They are my finals champion. Is it Chris Paul to finally get that ring? Is it Kyrie Irving? Is it James Harden or is it someone else? Love to give your thoughts again on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Who is the most pressure on them, team or player? When we return, speaking of pressure, 
Baker Mayfield this offseason, I think, has a lot of pressure to find the right situation for him in order to get his career back on track. He spoke on a podcast yesterday. I want to play some clips because I'll be honest, I'm a Baker fan. I think he can succeed. I'm rooting for him to succeed. But hearing him talk yesterday at a podcast has me concerned that he still doesn't get it. And his future, it's not looking bright. We'll explain why when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I'll be honest, I'm a Baker Mayfield fan. I think he's gotten an unfair shake at times in Cleveland. I think he is better um, than he, for the most part, gets credit for. And I do think Baker Mayfield is a quarterback if the situation around him is right. I'm not saying he's leading a team to the Super Bowl himself, but if he's in the right situation... I do think Baker Mayfield can be a successful franchise quarterback, and I do think he can lead a team to a Super Bowl. I do. He needs a situation to be around him that is is very good, but again, I think Baker is still a Super Bowl caliber quarterback. With that said, though, the one thing that right now is hurting Baker Mayfield, the one thing that's, I think, going to really hinder his ability to have success moving forward is his attitude. I think Baker Mayfield, really since the entire Deshaun Watson interest even started from the Browns, I think personally he's handled this all the wrong way. By basically wanting out of Cleveland before a Deshaun Watson trade was even made official, to kind of now, yesterday he was on a podcast, which will play a few clips here in a second, about him kind of talking about his future. I think Baker Mayfield's attitude right now is the biggest thing that's hurting his success moving forward. I want to play for one example here. What he said yesterday about his future, right? He was on a podcast called You Never Know, and he was asked, hey, what is kind of your future looking like in your mind? Do you think, where, or where will you be playing uh, next season? Here's Baker's answer. This would have been about a week and a half ago, I would have said Indianapolis. Um, Seattle. I mean, it'd probably be the most likely option. Mm-hmm. But even then, I... And, you, and where you're sitting, you don't give a I just, I'm ready for the next chapter. All right, so he says Seattle is the most likely option. Was it convincing? Absolutely not. But the reality is Baker Mayfield's looking at this the wrong way. If Baker wants to become a, a successful franchise quarterback again, which he does, playing for the Seahawks in 2022 is not how you're going to accomplish that. The Seahawks right now are tanking. The Seahawks don't have a lot around... Uh, the quarterback position right now that gives Baker, if he was to go there, a chance to succeed. I think they're going to trade away DK Metcalf. I don't think right now they are in the interest of winning. I don't care if Pete Carroll and John Snyder say what they have done. Their actions speak louder than words. Right now, their actions show you they are, are looking to tank. So going to Seattle, just because right now Drew Locke is a quarterback in Seattle and it gives you the best chance to get back on the field in 2022, I don't think is the right attitude for Baker Mayfield because for him... He should be worried about, I think, and more importantly, prioritizing going to the right destination. And that is, to me, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think right now, being a backup for the 2022 season makes more sense for Baker than going to a bad spot like the Seahawks just to get back on the field as quickly as you can. 
Because if you go to a team like the Buccaneers, which I think is the perfect team for Baker right now for 2022, think about it. You have one year left in the deal. So you go to Tampa, you back up Tom Brady. You learn some humility. You are able to improve your game from literally the best quarterback to ever play the position. So you get a little humble. You improve your game. You kind of earn some brownie points along the way by sitting behind Tom Brady. You get that boost, that clout that will kind of improve your stock just by being associated with Brady. And then from there, I mean, to me, it's a guarantee Tom Brady's leaving uh, Tampa Bay next season. Whether it's to retire again, whether it's to go play for the Dolphins, there's too much smoke and too much, too many stories linking Tom Brady to the Dolphins this offseason that have kept popping up for that for me, when Tom Brady's a free agent after the season, it makes it almost impossible to think he's not going to Miami next year. I think he is. So by hook or by crook, I think Tom Brady's going to be out of Tampa Bay next season and will either be a Dolphin or either be, excuse me, retired. So Tom Brady leaving the Buccaneers next season opens the door for uh, for Baker Mayfield to take over, be the quarterback. Because if you look at it right now, Tampa Bay with their signings, right, signing Chris Godwin to a long-term deal, signing uh, Leonard Fournette to a long-term deal, having a lot of other younger players signed for longer deals, this is not a team that's going to burn it down, let's say, when Tom Brady leaves. They are still going to be in the interest of winning and still have a solid core uh, built that is going to mean the Buccaneers will be a sustainable winner even when Tom Brady leaves. So if you're Tom, if you're Baker Mayfield, you have an awesome opportunity to step in for Tom Brady in 2023, take over a team that is still by far the best team in the division, take over a team that is that is still one of the top teams in a weak NFC, and have some familiarity with the offense to where you are able to have success. Look at right now the, the trend for a few teams. Look at what the Saints did. The Saints, or Jameis Wentz, I should say, went to the Saints in 2020. He served as Drew Brees' backup. He sat behind Drew. You know, Jameis was the former number one overall pick. That's a reality check to go to a team which you know you're going to be the backup. Jameis did it, sat behind Drew Brees for a year, and what happened? Drew Brees retired. Guess who was inserted as a starting quarterback in 2021? Jameis Winston. He gets hurt. Guess who's reinstated and reinserted as a quarterback for 2022? Jameis Winston. The Saints went with familiarity because Jameis Winston knew the team, knew the playbook, knew the system. So even though you have a new quarterback, the adjustment is not as drastic. Baker Mayfield can do the same exact thing. Former number one overall pick, sit behind Tom Brady, learn the system, and put yourself in a situation where you are the most likely successor for Tom Brady and take over a team that is still ready to win, still ready to have success, and should win their division, and will be still one of the top teams and one of the top Super Bowl contenders in the NFC in 2023. So Baker Mayfield right now, in his mind, in talking about the Seahawks and saying it's the most likely destination, is prioritizing starting. That, to me, is a mistake. Baker Mayfield should not be focused on going to a destination where he can be the starter right away in 2022 because most of those teams that are interested in him playing right away are not very good. Don't have a lot around the quarterback position right now. So I would rather, if I'm Baker Mayfield, take a step back. Go to a situation like Tampa Bay where you can be the backup, kind of build your reputation back up, learn a few things, improve your game, and then take over for the for Tom Brady when he inevitably leaves next season and get yourself back on track to become a real franchise quarterback. 
Don't prioritize playing. Don't get yourself beat up. Don't go to a bad team in Seattle that has no offensive line, no run game, and I think still most likely no number one receiver in DK Metcalf and kind of have your stats look bad and have your play be bad because there's nothing around you. Baker's a quarterback, admittedly, while I think he can have success and be a Super Bowl caliber quarterback, he needs help. He is not a quarterback that can really carry a team and elevate them past their potential. So with not a lot around Baker in Seattle, he's not going to turn that team into a magical 10-7 and team. That's just not happening. So being a backup for me makes the most sense for Baker next season in order to get himself back on track to being a franchise quarterback. The issue is when you hear Baker talk about you know, wanting to go to Seattle or thinking it's the most likely option, he is prioritizing playing in 2022, which I think is a mistake. I think it's more harmful than helpful. Be a backup. Look at this realistically. Take a piece of humble pie and take a step back in order to truly have your career take a massive step forward in 2023 and beyond. Look at Mitch Trubisky. Look, the Steelers, I get there's not a lot of high expectations for Mitch Trubisky, but his stock was never lower than it was after he left Chicago. He goes, backs up Josh Allen for a year. Does he do anything substantial? No, he does not. He doesn't play. He doesn't, you know, all of a sudden sub in and lead the Bills to an improbable playoff run. He took a few knees and he took a few handoffs at the end of blowout games. But just being behind Josh Allen boosted Mitch Trubisky's stock high enough to where the Steelers said, we'll give you a two-year deal. We'll let you be the starter. Again, Jameis Winston, after throwing 30 interceptions in one season, setting a record, went to New Orleans, sat behind Drew Brees, and got the starting job. The backup role has treated quarterbacks who need some rehab well. Baker Mayfield needs some career rehab. Going to Tampa Bay, becoming a backup, getting some humility, sitting behind Tom Brady for a year, learning something and just boosting your stock by being around Tom Brady, and then setting yourself up in a position to take over for Tom Brady when he inevitably leaves in 2023 and take over a roster that is playoff ready, that should win the division, and will still be a Super Bowl caliber team in a weak NFC, that is the best course of action for Baker Mayfield this season. I hope he realizes that. I really do. Taking a step back is by far the best option for Baker Mayfield. But it doesn't stop there. He talked a lot in this podcast. It was an hour and a half long. A lot of quotes were out there. I want to play one more. So I want to have you listen to Baker Mayfield and how he thought the Browns disrespected him. I think he, he's missing the, the boat here as well. But here's Baker Mayfield saying, basically, the Browns treated him unfairly. I feel disrespected, 100%. Because I was told one thing and they completed another. That's what I'm in the middle of right now. And you know what? Okay, I got, I got my taste of it because I've had four different head coaches in four years, a bunch of different coordinators. I've had, talk about the highest. They always come back. Mm-hmm. They always come back. <laughs> always. Yeah. But like, I mean, I had great times my rookie year. Like I didn't, I didn't start in the beginning. I came in and got to have fun the back half of the year. 2019 sucked. 2020 was great. Made the playoffs. 2021 was miserable. It's like, yeah, I'm just looking for stabilization right now. And like, I know what I need to do for me to be, to be the best version of me and to be able to lead an organization. And like, I'm in a good place right now. So Baker says he felt like he was disrespected by the Browns. Look, I'll say it. Baker has to or has to look at reality. He needs a reality check and has to look at a situation, no matter how difficult it may be, and realize what happened. The Brown, He may have felt like the Browns disrespected him, but I'll say this. The Browns went about it the right way. 
Baker Mayfield needs to admit and look in the mirror and realize that Sean Watson is a better quarterback than him. I get it's hard to admit that when you're a competitor. I get it's hard in the moment to say, this guy's better than me. I know athletes aren't wired that way. But you have to really look at yourself and realize why the Browns quote-unquote disrespected you. Because they got an upgrade. If you were a top five quarterback in the NFL, there's no questions. There's no sniffing around other quarterbacks. The Browns weren't begging for any other quarterback that wasn't Baker Mayfield. The Browns were only really looking at one quarterback, Deshaun Watson. It was Deshaun Watson or bust. So I really can't sit here and fault the Browns how they operated. They did what was best for their team and they got an upgrade. They did what was in their best interest, which is really only the only thing you can ask for from a team. So I get, and, and Baker's not wrong, I will say this in a sense of, he did get the short end of the stick in Cleveland. He's not wrong where the first three years, it was totally dysfunctional. Hugh Jackson, Greg Williams, Freddie Kitchens, it was a nightmare. Until Kevin Stefanski came in, was actually the first professional coach Baker had that actually knew what the hell he was doing, Baker didn't have a chance. Josh Allen in Buffalo had stability the entirety of his career so far in Buffalo. Right? There was no clown show with the Bills. Sean McDermott wasn't anywhere near the incapable and incompetent coach that either Hugh Jackson was or Freddie Kitchens was. Josh Allen had a, had a GM and a head coach that had a plan and were sticking to the plan. And Josh Allen, each and every year, incrementally improved because each and every year the Bills were doing stuff to help him, not hurt him. The, the Browns, frankly, screwed Baker Mayfield early on. Again, they had coaches that didn't know what they were doing. The plan was totally different from one year to the next. He was constantly learning a new offense. And the, the crappy part for Baker and the unfortunate part is the one offseason he had where the head coach and the offensive system were the same from 2020 to 2021, he got hurt in week two. It sucks. It really sucks. It's unfair and I get it. But you know what? Life is unfair sometimes. It's, I, I get it's easy to say you got to suck it up. But Baker Mayfield really has to look in the mirror and suck it up. You can feel disrespected, but you got to look at reality. The situation was the Browns got a reliable elite quarterback and they got the only quarterback that was better than you on the, on the market that was available. That's the reality. They weren't going to get Jimmy G. They weren't looking at Kirk Cousins. It was basically Deshaun Watson or bust. If it wasn't for Deshaun Watson, you would be uh, still a Brown. But you got to look. Your play, fair or not, didn't do enough to convince the Browns to keep you. You can make excuses, and I think those excuses are valid. I think what he said with all the ups and downs, the four head coaches in four years, he's right. There's been a lot that has, you know, fallen a lot of other quarterbacks. Like if Josh Allen uh, was on the Bill, uh, was on the Browns side of the Bills, Josh Allen's not on, uh, you know, not the quarterback he is right now. That's for damn sure. He is nowhere near an MVP quarterback. He is nowhere near the consistent quarterback he has developed into in Buffalo if he was taken number one overall by the Browns. That's how dysfunctional they were. But again, kind of similar to looking at the spot that you want to play for next year, you have to be realistic in your destination. You got to look in the mirror and realize why the Browns moved off of you and why your best option in 2022 is becoming a backup. I think the perfect destination is Tampa Bay. Take a step back, realize what happened, and move forward from there. For me, that's the only way Baker Mayfield can become successful going forward. I think he can absolutely win a Super Bowl. The, the situation has to be right. He has to have a really good team around him. I'm not telling you he's going to lead the team to a Super Bowl like Joe Burrow dragged the, the Bengals there this past season. But if everything is right, the offensive line, the run game, the defense, I think Baker Mayfield is absolutely good enough to lead a team to the Super Bowl and win it 
But also part of that goes to Baker Mayfield now becoming realistic and becoming um, or looking in the mirror and realizing where he is right now, what he has to do. And I'm not 100% convinced, I'll be honest, after hearing that interview, that he exactly has that mindset and he exactly knows what to do. So I'm hoping Baker Mayfield can figure it out, put it together. Um, But right now, hearing that interview does not exactly have me feeling good about the future prospects of Baker Mayfield. So I'm curious your thoughts here. What is the best course of action for Baker Mayfield? Is being a backup in 2022 truly the best option for him? Or does it make sense to go to a team like Seattle where he could start right away and just get back on the field? Is Baker better off being a starter in 2022 for a bad team or backing up a good quarterback on a good team and trying to rebuild your image that way? Love to hear your thoughts. You could tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show or tweet us at WWSRN underscore radio. You can write on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network is our is our um, is our show page. Also, newly created, make sure you throw us a like here. The Ryan Hickey Show is live on Facebook. A brand new show page. Every single clip from the show, every single live show is also posted in there as well. So if you visit Facebook, check us out, The Ryan Hickey Show, throw us a like, and you can find the live stream of the show on that page right there where you can comment. We're also live on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So what is the best course of action for Baker Mayfield in the future? And when we come back, the NBA playoffs are are starting up this weekend. I think we're going to see two first-round upsets. Tell you who those two teams are that will pull off the big upset in round number one. We'll do that when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Alrighty, the NBA playoffs are set to start up. The real playoffs as we uh, round, you know, wind down the play-in tournament. The real NBA playoffs are set to go down on uh, on Saturday starting up in the first round. I think in what is normally an NBA postseason that doesn't have many upsets, I think we're seeing two first-round upsets. A higher seed taking down a lower seed. I think the two upsets we're going to see, one in the East and one in the West. In the East, I think the Raptors, the five seed, are taking down the Sixers. In the West, I do think the Jazz are beating the Dallas Mavericks. Now, before we get there, as a reminder, the 10 o'clock hour is always brought to you by LC Designs. So, cootie boards are perfect for all occasions, so make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark herself. So, make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. Let's start with the Raptors and the Sixers. I think there's two real reasons why the Raptors are taking down Philly in the first round. Number one, I don't trust James Harden in the playoffs. absolutely do not trust him with my life at all. I think now when you are teaming up and you're looking at Philly going to a tough series, you cannot rely on James Harden to give you any sort of big-time contribution. And Joel Embiid, while he has made a tremendous case for the MVP, while he has had a career year and been tremendous, I think it's too much to ask Embiid to carry this team in the playoffs by himself. I do. So the fact that right now the Sixers are almost playing with 
one hand tied behind their back because that's how much of a liability James Harden is. Whether it's his inefficiency, whether it's struggle to, struggle to make shots, whether it's just his unreliability. I think he's going to be a massive... Um, uh, just, he's going to, you know not play well for the Sixers, then that's going to really hurt them and hinder their ability to win. So that's one of the reasons why I think the six uh, the Sixers are losing. Can't trust James Harden at all. Not to mention, the Raptors have a massive, massive coaching advantage in this postseason. In this series, really. Doc Rivers, fuck. The guy's an NBA champion. Credit to him. Since that 2008 title at the Boston Celtics, and really since, you know, even going to the finals two years later, Doc Rivers is one of the most overrated coaches in all the NBA. He keeps getting opportunities. I don't know why. He's not a very good coach, guys. He's not a very good coach. He doesn't make adjustments well. His, you know, you hear him talk about the game. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about it in a way that is up to date in how the NBA is played. He's not very good with the media. He is, he's not very creative in, in giving his team advantages. When you look at the other side, Nick Nurse is arguably the best coach in the NBA. Him, Eric Spolster right now with what those two coaches have done and have consistently done in terms of scheme, adjustments, getting the most out of their team. There are arguably new, no two better coaches that are getting the most out and schematically to the brightest minds in the NBA than right now Eric Spolster and especially Nick Nurse. So you look at this advantage where you trust, everyone should trust Nick Nurse right now, really out-scheming Doc Rivers making adjustment after adjustment, or Doc Rivers, for the most part, does the same thing over and over again, which is the reason why he is notoriously known for blowing 3-1 leads, mind you. I absolutely trust right now way more Nick Nurse than I do Doc Rivers. A massive coaching advantage in the favor of Toronto. Not to mention the Raptors, I think, are really built for the postseason. They're long. They're physical. They're deep. Pascal Siakam this year has been tremendous. He's really taken his game to the next level. Scotty Barnes has not only injected life into this team, he has been, again, a reliable scorer, reliable playmaker, and has really arguably been the rookie of the year so far. He's been unreal. Fred Van Vliet, as we know, a championship player, he's been really solid as well. A lot of contributors for the Raptors on this team. They are they have a massive coaching advantage, and they don't have James Harden. Not to mention... Fair or not, they have an advantage with the rules of Toronto where Matisse Thibel will not be able to play the, the Sixers' uh, long wing defender. He won't be able to play in Toronto. So he'll miss, you know, games three and four, maybe game six if it gets that far. And that's huge because right now the Sixers are not very good defensively. They have Joel Embiid, and that's it. James Harden, Tobias Harris, like you cannot rely on any of these defenders right now to get stops. Matisse Thibel is really the only reliable defender you have outside of Embiid. Now, with him missing three games, potentially, but at least two, that's huge. That's a huge loss for a team that is deficient on the defensive end of the floor. So, I think for all those reasons, we are seeing the Raptors take down the Sixers in the first round of playoffs, and it's going to set off a chain of events. I think Doc will be fired. I don't think James Harden will return for the Sixers. It is going to set the city ablaze, that is for sure. Raptors taking down the Sixers. And I think the Jazz, as a five seed, are also beating the four seed in the Mavericks, who are both upsets being a five over four. Again, not that outrageous or that, you know, going out on a limb. But honestly, the only reason why I'm picking the Jazz in this series is because of Luka Doncic's injury. That's it. Calf injuries can be very fickle. It could be a week. It could be three weeks. We have no idea. We don't know the severity of Luka's calf. All we know is that it's confirmed to be a calf strain. It seems very unlikely that he's going to play in game one. I'd personally be shocked right now with the way things are trending if he plays. And if he does play, 
Reality is he's not going to be 100%. He's not going to be anywhere near 100%, and that's going to hurt his impactfulness and his ability to take over a game. So if you are the Jazz right now, who come in for the most part fully healthy, ready to go, you are taking on either a Luka-less Mavs team or a severely hurt Luka-led Mavs team. You got to finish the job, and I do think they will. Utah's going to get it done. They got Rudy Gobert. You got Donovan Mitchell. Well, this team is not really built for the postseason, right? Their style of play is not conducive to postseason success. I do think it's going to be enough to take down the Mavericks in round one. Again, just because that Luke injury is so devastating. If he was healthy, I think the Mavs win this series. All right, easily. Not okay, easily. If game five, five games, six games. I think it'll be a shorter series if, if Luke is healthy because I just don't trust the Jazz come postseason time. But with that said... No Luka or a limited Luka. I think that really favors the Jazz. They will get it done. So the two upsets I think we're seeing in the first round of the playoffs, Raptors beating the Sixers, Jazz beating the Mavericks. Now I think three teams are going to breeze through their first round. The Heat, the Bucks, the Suns. Heat will have the play-in uh, seed as the, you know, as the eighth seed. We'll find out Friday whether it's the Cavaliers, whether it's the Hawks. Either way, I think this Heat team defensively is going to suffocate either Cleveland or Atlanta, and then I think they're going to go through the series pretty pretty quickly. This is a team in the Heat that's built for the postseason. They got Jimmy Butler. They got Kyle Lowry. Those two are just dogs. They have that mentality that you need come postseason time on the defensive end of the floor. They're relentless. They grind out games. I'm a little concerned offensively uh, for this Heat team, and I don't think they're going to make the, the conference finals, or definitely at least not the NBA finals. But I will say through at least the first round of the playoffs, the matchup they will get, whether it's the Cavs or whether it's the Hawks, is favorable. And the defense will lock down either Trey Young, lock down Darius Garland. And the Heat, I think, will cruise in the first round of the playoffs. I know it's not, you know, the craziest thing in the world to say, oh, an eight uh, number one seed is going to cruise by an eight seed. But I do think the Heat will cruise through. Speaking of cruising, the Bucks are cruising through Chicago. They are sweeping the Bulls, no doubt about it. You look at this Bulls team, we can't even call them frauds anymore because they just they have hit they hit the skids and their record wise, which was one of the tops in the NBA, has really kind of fallen off a cliff the last six weeks or so. But the Bulls have done something very impressive. They have lost every single game they have played against a good team. Literally every single one. They have played 19 teams this season that have either been in the top three in the East or top three in the West. The Bulls' record in those 19 games against either top three teams in the East or West. 0-19. 0-19. Literally, not one win against a top three team in the East or West. As we know in the NBA, players sit a lot. Teams just have off nights. You're coming off back-to-backs. There is enough variance in the NBA in the regular season in one regular season game to win one. I mean, hell, the Thunder have you know beaten some of the best teams in the NBA. You can't tell me the Bulls can be 0-19 against those opponents. And I don't think the that zero in the one column is changing. Bucks are going to blow by them, sweep them easily. Milwaukee right now is the best team in the East. They're peaking at the right time. I don't think the Bulls stand a chance. Bucks are going to be walking through, sleepwalking through that first round series against Chicago. And the Suns, similar to Heat, I think whoever their playing opponent is, whether it's the Clippers, whether it's the Pelicans, they are going to be fine. They're going to breeze through. There's no weakness in the Suns team. They've been the best team in the NBA since the start. You got Devin Booker playing like an MVP level. Chris Paul right now is is running this offense to perfection. DeAndre Ayton is having the most consistent year of his career. Mikael Bridges has been a defensive player of the year candidate. They are clicking in all cylinders offensively and defensively. 
There's no weakness, and I don't think there'll be any bump in the road for the Suns in their first-round series. So the Suns, the Heat, the Bucks, all three teams, I think are going to breeze through their first-round series. And I think we're going to get three tremendous opening-round series. Three great ones. Where I think that the higher seed is going to win in the Celtics, the Warriors, and the Grizzlies, but we're going to have three knockout, dragout fights that are going to go six or seven games. Celtics, Nets, Warriors, Nuggets, T-Wolves, Grizzlies. I think Boston is being the Nets. I think it's going to be six games. I think it's going to be a great back and forth series. It's going to be tight every single game. But the difference for me is the depth of scoring Boston has and their defense. We talk about in the NBA postseason, what? Stars. And we know the Nets have stars. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, that's what everyone's attention goes to. But I think Boston defensively is going to be able to shut them down enough to win this series. Boston comes in number one in defensive rating. I know they don't have Robert Williams, which is a huge loss down low, but they match up well with the Nets. They have Boston does long wings and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who can match up with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. They have Marcus Smart, another defensive player of the year candidate, playing tremendous basketball and is healthy, which is huge for them as well. He can lock down Kyrie. He can try to take away Bruce Brown uh, or, or Seth Curry. So right now, the Celtics defensively, even without Robert Williams, I think match up really well to slow down Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Are you going to shut them down every single game? Absolutely not. But if you can just limit those two from going off, the Nets to me don't have anyone else you can rely on consistently for scoring. That's a problem. And that to me is the reason why the the Celtics are going to win. I trust their defense. Offensively, they could score and the Nets have no chance of stopping them. Kyrie uh, or uh, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown have been playing some great basketball. Celtics have been one of the hottest teams in the NBA. I think that continues. They get by the Nets in round number one. I think the Warriors beat the Nuggets, but this is going to be a series where the Steph Curry injury makes it closer than it should be. His uh, his game one status is up in the air. It's going to be a game time decision right now. Even if he plays kind of similar to Luka Doncic with the Mavs, he's not going to be fully healthy. And I think that injury... Coupled with the fact that Seth Curry's three-point shot has been off this season, the worst of his career, I think that's going to make this series closer than it should be because the Nuggets right now are just depleted. I know Nicole Jokic has made a, a great run um, and has a great campaign to win his second consecutive MVP award. He's done so basically without Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray for the entirety of the season. He's been great. He's been tremendous. But with that said, come playoff time, that is where you, I think you're going to truly... Uh, feel the loss of those two impact players. But, again, an evening factor in this series is Steph Curry's health or lack thereof. So, it gives the the Warrior or the Nuggets a chance. I like the emergence of Jordan Poole. He's been a, a very good player. But the Warriors are going to need Steph Curry to be on his A game in order to make a deep run in the playoffs. But with that said, I think they still have enough, even if Steph is limited and even misses a game or two, to get by the Nuggets. But that injury is going to make this series longer than it should be. I have the Warriors in six. I think Steph does return um, and does play game one, but he's going to be you know a little iffy with that foot, a little rusty as well. I think that rust, that injury, is going to make this series an entertaining one, but closer than it really should be if Steph was fully healthy. And what I think on paper right now is going to be the, the most fun series in terms of excitement, in terms of uh, fan engagement, in terms of just yapping on the floor, Grizzlies Timberwolves is setting up to be one of the most exciting and dramatic first round series we're going to have in this opening round playoff. Memphis, I think, wins in six, but it is going to be fun because both teams are young, 
Both teams love to chirp, and both teams got some serious swag. Now, the Grizzlies are led by John Morant. All season long, they have been, I don't say cocky, but they have, let's say, been talking a big game and backing it up. They're not afraid of anyone. They're not afraid to tell you that they're not afraid of anyone. They talk smack. They back it up. Their home court in uh, in Memphis has been tremendous all season long. The fans love this team. It has been a lot of fun watching this Grizzlies team kind of grow up in front of rise this season, led by John Morant. But on the other side, kind of equally uh, in terms of smack talk and crowd and belief, is the Wolves. Like, they're no slouches either. We saw, and in case you haven't watched a lot of Wolves games, we saw it just on display Tuesday night in the playing against the Clippers. That crowd was raucous. It felt like Game 7 of the Finals. I know a lot of people were clowning the Timberwolves for how they're celebrating after their, after beating the Clippers. That has been an organization, that's been a, a, a team, that's been a fan base that has suffered through a lot. They've seen a lot of losing. They have caught a lot of L's. I have no problem with them celebrating, even though I will admit it was funny as hell seeing everyone clown them and kind of pretending that, you know, that um, making fun of the Grizzlies for, uh, or making fun of the Timberwolves for celebrating like they won the finals instead of just making the playoffs. But with that said, though, they got a reason to be fired up. And again, that emotion that they play with, the emotion that they showed on Tuesday night is what they bring into the series every single night. Patrick Beverly is one of the best agitators uh, in all the NBA. He gives that team, that Wolves team, an edge that we saw kind of really be put on display Tuesday night. Anthony Edwards plays with a chip on his shoulder and kind of plays uh, to show everyone up. Carl Anthony Towns has no problem kind of running his, ma- running his mouth and chirping to other opponents as well. This is going to be a fun series where both teams are going to, they are young, they, they feel like they have something to prove, and they want to kind of Play well, but also talk about how well they play. It's going to be an intense series. You're going to see a lot of technical fouls, a lot of chirp back and forth. The both home crowds are going to be into it. It is going to be electric. I cannot wait. I think this is arguably the series I'm most excited to watch. And the Grizzlies get it done in six. But you talk about back and forth. You talk about emotion. You talk about passion. This is almost going to feel like an NCAA tournament game for six games. It's going to be that intense. That passion, it was going to be a lot of fun. Grizzlies do win, but man, am I excited. So I think we'll see two first-round upsets in the in the playoffs. I think the Jazz are taking down the Mavericks, 5 over 4. I think the 5 over 4 in the East is going down as well. Raptors taking down the Sixers. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Let's hear about Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show, or WWSRN underscore radio. Which team is pulling off an upset? Will we see an upset in the first round of the playoffs? And if so, who? Which team is pulling off a first round upset in your mind? Again, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, comment there. We'll get your thoughts. And when we return, I want to get into the future of Jordan Love from the Packers. They made a massive, massive mistake in the handling of their young quarterback. I'll tell you what that mistake was and why when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
right, Ryan Hickey back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So a lot of quarterback talk today. Hit on Baker Mayfield and his comments before. And I want to kind of hit on some more comments, but not from a quarterback himself, but from a team president. Because right now, Mark Murphy um, spoke earlier this week about the future of Jordan Love. And before we play the comments, I just want to say this. The Packers, in my opinion, have totally and completely bungled the handling of Jordan Love this offseason. I think they should have traded him. I think they are, you know, inst- uh, insane for kind of holding on to him. But when I play a Mark Murphy's comments here for a second, they, to me, sound like someone who has no plans of trading Jordan Love and has a, a future vision of him one day taking over the team. This sounds like Jordan Love is going to be the heir to Aaron Rodgers whenever he does retire. Take a listen to what Mark Murphy said on the Tom Grossi podcast earlier this week when talking about the future of Jordan Love. All right, so a lot there from Mark Murphy. And the last part to me cements the fact that the Packers are going to hold on to Jordan Love the the entire five years he's under contract so far of his rookie deal. They said the same thing when we drafted Aaron Rodgers, Mark Murphy, referencing when when the Packers drafted Aaron Rodgers back in 05 with Brett Favre still in the roster. As we know, Brett Favre played three more seasons after they drafted Aaron Rodgers. Um, but the situations here are totally different. Number one, because Brett Favre was wavering and think about and talk about retirement every single year. While Aaron Rodgers has only talked about playing into his 40s and playing longer, not shorter. But with that said, though, the Packers um, still drafted Jordan Love. And you heard Mark Murphy say towards the end of the clip, you know, it's always important to, to invest future resources into the quarterback position. So for me, when you hear Mark Murphy talk, whether it's referencing the Aaron Rodgers draft, whether it's saying you want to invest in future options for your quarterback, or basically open and openly um, downgrading your quarterback's value, right? Him saying earlier in the clip, you know, we want to see Jordan Love more. We, we think he could be good, but we don't, you know, we haven't seen enough yet. If you were truly trying to trade Jordan Love, you were not saying that. You are not painting him out to be a question mark. Instead, publicly, you are painting him out to be a known commodity, which is a good quarterback if you are in the market for trading him. So I think they should have traded him. But here, Mark Murphy talk, there is no indication. And there's no motivation from the Packers to trade him. But I think that's a massive mistake. Like keeping Aaron, uh, I'm sorry, keeping Jordan Love on the roster for another two to three years and basically having him be the heir apparent, taking over Aaron Rodgers when Aaron Rodgers does retire. I think it's a bad bad move, excuse me. It's a massive mistake. Because Jordan Love is a dead weight to this team. Jordan Love really serves the Packers no good. And here's what I mean by that. When you make the decision to bring back Aaron Rodgers, when you sign him to the extension that they did, you are, in essence, selling your soul to win a Super Bowl within the next two or three years. So you have to do, if you're the Packers, in bringing Aaron Rodgers back, everything possible to ensure this team is ready to win a Super Bowl. 
and keeping a quarterback, keeping a rookie quarterback on it on on the team instead of trading him as a valuable asset only hurts the Packers, not helps. Because when you look at his value, when you look at the Packers, you know, trying to put themselves in the best position possible to succeed, when you trade away Devontae Adams, you need now a replacement. I know they got a first and second round pick back from the Raiders, but you need as many assets as possible in order to make your team as good as you can. To the Packers' credit, they have been successful, very successful, in drafting and developing players, right? That's really basically been their model of consistency for really the last few decades. So if you are a team that is that is usually drafting very well, wouldn't you want to have the most draft picks available to at least build and surround Aaron Rodgers with good young talent? And the way to do that is not only by trading away Devonta Adams, which you know they had no choice if you listen to the Packers to do, but also trading Jordan Love. Because Jordan Love's value is never going to be higher than it was this offseason. And we went into an offseason where there was a lot of teams that needed a quarterback, but there weren't many options to get a good quarterback. Right, You had uh, Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson, really the only two elite bona fide stud quarterbacks that were traded. You had teams that were desperate and then decided to take a risk on Mitch Trubisky, take a risk on uh, Jameis Winston, take a risk on Marcus Mariota, take a risk on Drew Locke. Take a risk on Carson Wentz for the third time if you're the commanders. There's a lot of average to below average quarterbacks that were moved. Whereas if you look at Jordan Love, I bet you almost every one of those teams I just listed. The Steelers, the Seahawks, the Saints, the Panthers, depending on what they do in the draft, the Falcons, the Commanders, all would have taken Jordan Love over the quarterback they eventually signed or traded for. So you have a lot of desperate teams in need of a quarterback without a lot of options out there. The quarterback draft class this year is weak, so you don't have many teams kind of lining up their um, their draft in order to find the next franchise quarterback. Maybe the Panthers, maybe the Seahawks are teams that are you know could take a quarterback, but there's not a lot of teams that are dead set on taking a QB this draft. So Jordan loves value for his age, being you know, only a, a third year in the league or going on his third year in the league, the fact that there weren't a lot of good quarterbacks out there and the fact that the draft class was weak, by far this was the most valuable Jordan Love was going to be. So you would have gotten the highest return. I've talked in the show in the past about getting a first round pick. I mean, maybe I was reaching a little bit, but I think they could have gotten some good value trade-wise. Second round pick, um, maybe two twos, et cetera, because Jordan Love still is a first round pick and he has promise. And he's still young on a cheap contract. So you could have gotten assets to put around Aaron Rodgers, whether it's a receiver in core, whether it's on the defense, whether it's offensive line reinforcements. You could have, for a team that drafts really well, gotten extra draft picks to ensure Aaron Rodgers you know, has the tools he needs to succeed. Or get those extra draft picks and trade them away for a known commodity like a DK Metcalf. Like another receiver that could be on the block. So you could have used those those draft assets either trade for a, a player or draft a, a, a player that could be there for the long haul. Instead, the Packers are holding on to Jordan Love in the hopes, in the thought that he is going to someday replace Aaron Rodgers and they are willing, it sounds like according to Mark Murphy, basically ride through the entirety of his rookie deal in order to do that and that is a massive waste. Like, if you look, when you re-sign Aaron Rodgers again, 
to a three-year extension, you, right now, the last thing Green Bay should be worried about is the future. When you sign Aaron Rodgers to that three-year extension and you keep Aaron Rodgers in a Green Bay uniform, you are now dead set uh, set on trying to win a Super Bowl. That is the only goal. Nothing short of that is considered a success. Aaron Rodgers wants to win, and by signing him and keeping him there, you want to win as well. I know the Packers have always been an organization that has one eye in the future and one eye in the present. That's the reason why they drafted Jordan Love in the first place. They wanted a succession plan in place in case things went sideways because they clearly did not see the MVPs uh, or the back-to-back MVP seasons that Aaron Rodgers did have coming. So they were worried about instead the future when um, now you have another option or another chance when Aaron Rodgers signs a deal to ditch the future and worry about the short term right here and now. Having a succession plan for Aaron Rodgers three years down the road does the Packers no good in terms of winning a Super Bowl right now. So keeping a, a, a quarterback, a valuable asset on your roster when you could have gotten draft picks back to me, is a massive waste of resources. There's no hope, there's no reason right now to be thinking five years down the road. Hoping Jordan Love pans out. Because guess what? If Aaron Rodgers sees the duration of a three-year contract and then retires, well, guess what? Jordan Love's going to be out of his rookie deal and then you're going to have to make a decision and give Jordan Love some sort of extension without seeing any play from him. Without even really knowing whether he can be the successor or not. Mark Murphy just said it. They don't know what they have in Jordan Love. Now, either he's telling the truth and they truly have not seen enough in practice, which is a little concerning, or in the preseason, which is also a little concerning, to decipher whether Jordan Love can be the guy or not. Or, or, Mark Murphy's trying to play coy and feeling good about Jordan Love but not trying to get the fans hyped up too much, which again, when you sit for three years, I'm not sure if Jordan Love's also going to be on board for sitting around for three years. So if you're forced to trade Jordan Love next year, his value goes down. And if you want to keep him for five years, you're going to have to give him a new deal without knowing what he is or if he's any good. Like, what if they see more in the preseason and he stinks? And he's not good. Well, good luck trying to trade him. And all of a sudden now you're going to have a dead weight where your succession plan was totally blown up. I think the, the Packers made a massive mistake in keeping Jordan Love because, again, all you're doing is hurting your future. All you're or forget your future. All you do is hurting the here and now. This team should have one goal in its mind right now, winning a Super Bowl. What can we do to put the most around Aaron Rodgers? The answer, to me, is not keeping Jordan Love around. Because if Aaron Rodgers gets hurt, the season's over anyway. And you right now can get the most back for Aaron Rodgers that you could Instead of keeping him on the roster. Forget about three years from now. Forget about 2025 season. Worry about 2022. The best way to do that is by trading Jordan Love. The Packers are not doing that. The window is passed. Teams have gotten their quarterbacks. There's no market for Jordan Love anymore. So Mark Murphy's talking about how he doesn't know what Jordan Love is. They want to see more from the preseason. It's a big year for him. That's concerning. That's not a good sign. And him comparing the draft pick to Aaron Rodgers when they made that 15 years ago or so shows you the Packers plan on keeping Jordan Love through the duration of his rookie deal and then from there going to reassess when Aaron Rodgers retires their succession plan and what it's going to be like. That to me is a mistake. You should be going all in these next three years to try to win a Super Bowl. If you do, mission successful. Great. If not, well, you can always look back on a, on a roster move like Jordan Love being there for five years and wasting a valuable asset you could have used to trade in for a better player. So you get the Packers that much closer.
So I don't think it's it's a good move in any situation or, or by any means for the Packers holding on to Jordan Love. I think they made a massive mistake this offseason in holding on to their most valuable asset that they could have traded in to get better. So I'm curious your thoughts here. If you're a Packers fan, do you like them trading Jordan Love? Do you like the fact that your team right now, despite having Aaron Rodgers, despite having a window open for three years really in the NFC that's weak, despite losing your best receiver and the best receiver in the NFL, Devontae Adams, your team in the Packers is really not doing everything right now that they could be and should be doing in order to put a Super Bowl caliber team around Green Bay. That to me is a mistake, but do you think it's smart? Do you think it's smart to have one eye in the future and get ready whenever Aaron Rodgers retires to have Jordan Love waiting in the wings? Or should you go all in, kind of burn the boats, if you will, and do whatever it takes to try to get Aaron Super Bowl number two? That, to me, should be the plan. That is not what the Packers are doing, and it is a mistake. So love to hear your thoughts. Facebook Worldwide Sports Ray Network. You can like us at the Ryan Hickey Show page on Facebook. That's where the live stream of the show is there as well. You can catch us on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show or WWSRN underscore radio. And we're on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, speaking of quarterbacks, did the Raiders make the right call in giving Derek Carr a contract extension? We'll discuss when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Oh yeah, we are grooving here on a Thursday morning. Welcome on into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We do, I want to get into Derek Carr's contract situation here. I think it's a bad deal for the Raiders for one massive aspect. I'll get to that in one second here. But I do at least want to discuss some breaking news that possibly could be forming here in the NBA. There is a report on the future of Ben Simmons, and it seems like Ben Simmons actually could make a return in the playoffs for the Nets. Now, according to uh, Brian Windhorst of ESPN, there is a thought and there is a report out there that Ben Simmons could make his Nets debut as soon as Game 4 of the first round of the playoffs uh, for the Nets, which would be in Brooklyn, taking on the Celtics. Now look, if he plays, honestly, first of all, I think it's a mistake for the Nets to play Ben Simmons. The guy hasn't played in a year. The last time Ben Simmons was on the court, as we know, he passed up a dunk and basically just, just melted on the court in the playoffs uh, against the Hawks. We've had so much drama about Ben Simmons, whether it's his mental health, whether whether it's his actual health with his back, forcing his way out of Philly. And there's been so much, there's so many questions about Ben Simmons that if I'm the Nets, number one, I don't think it makes the most sense for you to bring him back in an, an insanely high leverage moment. This guy's not, he's barely practicing for the last year. He's never played in the game with the Nets. He has no continuity or familiarity with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And now, after what he has gone through, and all the drama surrounding Ben Simmons, the first moment you're going to bring him back is game four of the playoffs against the Celtics. I think it's a mistake. No, even if you get, what, 10 minutes? Is that really that big of a deal? Like, is that going to impact the game? No. If I'm the Nets, I think, you know what? I just pack it up on Ben Simmons this year. Am I coddling him? Sure. 
You can get on me for babying Ben Simmons too much. I think it does the Nets more of a disservice and more of a harm than good to bring Ben Simmons back. I think he's more of a distraction. I don't think he could be relied on. He's not going to give you any sort of meaningful contribution. And again, putting him back in the playoffs on the same stage that he crumbled on last year as his first kind of taste and first intro back into basketball, I think it's a mistake. Some people say just jump right into the deep end. Can you sink or swim? That's the way to, to do it. When it's a player like Ben Simmons, I would say I would rather kind of go in the shallow end first. I'd rather ease him back, have him play next year, have you know get his legs under him in the regular season, and then work his way back to the playoffs. I think going right from 0 to 100, right from not playing, not playing, not playing. Okay, here's game four of the playoffs, which could, you know, if it's 2-1 Boston, let's say a pivotal series, or 2-1 even Brooklyn, a pivotal game in Brooklyn, game four, to really swing the tide of the series one way or another. I don't feel great about Ben Simmons being on the court and contributing in a meaningful way. I know what you're going to say. He's only playing defense. He's only there to rebound. And in reality, and in theory, that's true. Because um, you have scores in Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And offensively, you really don't need Ben Simmons to do a lot. But him coming in cold uh, without any practice, without really any any sort of play, I think is a mistake and won't benefit the Nets. I think it will only hurt him. So I wouldn't play him, but there's a report from Brian Windhorse saying that Ben Simmons could make his return to the Nets lineup as early as game number four. So keep your eye on that. So a long way to uh, long ways away. And it's a report saying as soon as game four. So it's not even saying it's definitive. We'll get there. It's basically going to be game by game, but we can rule out Ben Simmons for the first few games of this series against the Celtics. I wouldn't bring him back if I am the um, if I'm the Nets. Speaking of bringing back, the Raiders brought back Derek Carr. They gave him a three-year contract extension. I think the deal is a mistake for one reason and one reason only. You gave him a no-trade clause. I hate the no-trade clause for the Raiders because what it does is take away the one thing the Raiders need desperately at the quarterback position. That is flexibility. Derek Carr, to me, is is a good quarterback. He's a top 12 quarterback. He's not elite. He's not a guy I believe you could win a Super Bowl with. So with that said, when you don't have the guy, and I don't think the Raiders have the guy, well, the one thing you got to be doing then is always looking to find the guy. Always put yourself in the position to be able to acquire the guy. And that is flexibility. And right now, by taking or, or giving Derek Carr a no-trade clause, you are giving Derek Carr all the leverage. You are giving, basically, Derek Carr control of his future, and with him being under contract through 2025, he's going nowhere anytime soon. So the Raiders now, I think, limit themselves in terms of being able to upgrade if an upgrade should present itself either in the draft, like we saw the 49ers do when they trade up to, to, uh, to draft Trey Lance, or... With a trade like we saw the Browns do in ditching Baker Mayfield for Deshaun Watson, or like the uh, uh, Broncos did in acquiring Russell Wilson. You gotta leave yourself flexibility in order to be able to upgrade and pivot from your good quarterback to a great quarterback. When you look around the NFL, right, we know teams like the Chiefs have an elite quarterback. We just saw Matthew Stafford win a Super Bowl. Uh, we know Josh Allen has really, you know, developed into one of those, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Deshaun Watson has been like that. Now the Browns have him. When you look at teams with an elite quarterback, teams, those 10 teams, right, that have that franchise guy, that Super Bowl caliber guy you feel good about, almost all of them acquired that guy in the same way. Whether it's through the draft or whether it's through a trade, 
all of those teams moved off of a good quarterback in order to get the upgrade for a great quarterback. The Raiders don't have that flexibility. Like, for example, the Chiefs. The Chiefs had Alex Smith. They were a perennial playoff team. They always had 10 wins every single year. Well, the the Chiefs said, you know what? We need an upgrade. We're going to go draft Patrick Mahomes. They moved up in order to draft Patrick Mahomes. They were able to trade Alex Smith a year later. And as we know, they've been off and running, have been looking back since. The Rams got to a Super Bowl with Jared Goff. They said, this guy is not enough. Let's go draft or let's go trade for, excuse me, Matthew Stafford. The Bills went to the playoffs with Terod Taylor the year before. What did they do the following draft? They traded uh, and got Josh Allen. They moved up, they traded, they got Josh Allen. The Cardinals, they had Josh Rosen who stunk. But how often do we see a team give up on a first-round top-10 quarterback after just one year? Never, right? We we never see teams ditch first-round quarterbacks that early. Well, the Cardinals had said, see you later, Josh Rosen. One year, we're going to get Kyler Murray. The Browns had Baker Mayfield, if you want to chalk up an I would, 2021 to injuries and him being better than what he really showed on the field last year. This is a guy who won you a playoff game for the first time in 26 years. They moved off of him for Deshaun Watson. In every single case, the Chiefs, the Rams, the Bills, the Cardinals, the Browns, they had the flexibility at the quarterback position, whether they had to eat some money or add extra draft picks uh, to sweeten the pot, they had the flexibility to when an upgrade presented itself to move off of their good quarterback to go get a great one. The Raiders don't have that flexibility. With Derek Carr having a no-trade clause, they can't move him freely. Derek Carr controls his future, whereas the Chiefs are able to move Alex Smith, the Rams are able to move Jared Goff, the Browns will eventually be able to move Baker Mayfield. Those teams had flexibility to get a a great quarterback in the building. The Raiders don't have that, and I think that's a mistake. Not having that flexibility when an upgrade presents itself to go get that quarterback that truly can take you to a Super Bowl level that I don't think Derek Carr can can take you to, I think is a big mistake by the Raiders and why this deal... Uh, and giving Derek Carr a three-year contract extension with a no-trade clause is a mistake. I think it's a mistake. I think the Raiders erred right now um, too, on the side too much of Derek Carr, where you should have given yourself number one priority should have been flexibility. You want to give him the contract extension without the no-trade clause? Fine. Derek Carr is a good quarterback where you can't give up on it. Like, he's too good to give up on. So going to the last year of his deal, I don't hate the extension in just terms of whether it's a three-year deal, which I think is the perfect length. Even the $40 million per season, I think, is a little high. But as you know, the going rate for quarterbacks is only going up. Derek Carr is not going to settle for anything less. Okay, fine. If it was a three-year deal at $40 million on average per season with no trade clause, I'm sitting here giving you know, the Raiders praise and Derek Carr praise. I think it's a win-win on both sides. Because you still maintain that flexibility while also keeping a really good quarterback in tow that can still get you to the playoffs on a consistent basis. But that's not the case. The no trade clause for me ruins this extension for the Raiders because they lose what I think is the most important thing teams need when they don't have the guy a quarterback. And that is the flexibility in order to one day trade for the guy, which they don't have. Raiders, I think, made a mistake in giving Derek Carr the no trade clause because now Derek Carr is in control of his future, not the team. I don't think the Raiders are a Super Bowl team. Derek Carr is still the worst quarterback in the AFC West. Mistake by by Las Vegas in terms of hitching their wagons to Carr through 2025. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports. And I really appreciate all of you guys tuning on in and making us a part of your morning. 
Very excited. Opening day. The home opener for the Mets is tomorrow. So I will be there in person. I'll get, make sure to give you some feedback. Check uh, check out my social media at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter and Instagram. We'll give you some uh, live looks from what is going to be a raucous, raucous crowd at City Field for sure. be a lot of fun. Cannot wait. But enjoy the weekend. We got the NBA playoffs underway starting on Saturday. We got a lot going on in the world of sports. So we'll be back on Monday to break it all down. So between now and then, have a great weekend. As always, stay safe, stay sane. We'll talk to you on Monday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is